Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor. And this week, after a few opening remarks, I'll be talking with my colleague, Ambrin Zaman, El Monitor senior correspondent covering the Middle East, North Africa, and Europe. Ambrin will share observations from her reporting and analysis on Turkey, the Kurds, and Syria, and whether the U.S. and Turkey have irreconcilable differences that hinder an improvement in relations, and that's despite a strong personal chemistry between Presidents Trump and Erdogan. That conversation is coming up soon after this short break. It's the Syrian people who are paying the highest price, no doubt. I mean, they're confronted by war, a very ruthless government that seems to have no uh, consideration for for human life, raining barrel bombs on hospitals, on, on you know, civilian population centers, a high degree of corruption, and uh, a regime that shows absolutely no signs of changing its behavior uh, and empowered by a country, Russia, that has very little regard apparently for human rights as well. And now there's the Caesar sanctions that will kick in uh, and the fear, of course, is very much that this will just make life even harder if that were even possible because life is so hard for most Syrians with over 83% living beneath the poverty line. Welcome back to On the Middle East. That's an excerpt from my conversation with Amber and Zaman, which we'll get to in just a minute. But first, let me share something that's on my mind. Last week, the World Bank released a new report in which it revised downward its already gloomy outlook for the region, forecasting an economic downturn of 4.2% with the risk quote, heavily tilted to the downside, unquote, uh, because, not surprisingly, of COVID-19, weak oil prices, and the ongoing conflicts in Syria, Yemen, and Libya. Now, in addition to these three countries in conflict, the forecast, which is troubling for the whole region, is especially worrying for Lebanon and Iraq, too. Uh, Lebanon's economy is expected to shrink this year by 10.9%. That's the most in the region. And 6.3% in 2021, the, the only country in the region where economic growth is not expected next year. And this follows the economy uh, shrinking by 1.9% in 2018 and 5.6% in 2019. Uh, Lebanon, as you know, this week saw a resurgence of rioting and protests as its currency value and economy have plummeted. Now, Iraq's economy is projected to contract by 9.7% this year, also the result of COVID-19 and low oil prices. Uh, some potential good news for Iraq was that the U.S.-Iraq strategic dialogue was held last week and economics was part of the discussion. And uh, the joint U.S.-Iraq statement uh, reflecting the conversations said that the U.S. discussed providing economic advisors to Iraq to work directly to help uh, Baghdad advance international support for its reform efforts. 
and that the two governments also talked about investment projects, including world-class U.S. firms in the energy and other sectors, providing, the statement read, the business conditions are favorable. Now, Iraq, Lebanon, and other countries are undertaking these urgent economic reforms at a difficult time, and, and those reforms will involve some degree of austerity, subsidy reduction, and transparency. And IMF reform processes always challenging and often painful for citizens. And it's made even more so this year by the need to address COVID-19 and uh, the decline in revenues because of low oil prices, not to mention uh, contentious political setting in the wars in Syria, Yemen, and Libya. Lebanon, like Iraq and other countries throughout the region, need support for these reform efforts from the U.S. and international financial institutions including substantial debt reduction, this is already being discussed by the World Bank and others, uh, to give these countries a, a fighting chance. The bank's report concludes that if reform initiatives are not integrated as part of COVID-19 policy responses, that is, reform has to be linked to the steps the countries are taking to deal with COVID-19, Further delays could hinder medium and long-term growth prospects in the region, leading to lower job creation and stalled private sector development. Now let's turn to our conversation with Amberin Zaman, El Monitor's senior correspondent reporting from the Middle East, North Africa, and Europe. Amberin writes on the politics of Turkey, Iraq, and Syria, and is author of El Monitor's daily newsletter, Briefly Turkey. Prior to El Monitor, Amberin covered Turkey, the Kurds, and conflicts in the region for the Washington Post, the Daily Telegraph, the Los Angeles Times, and the Voice of America. And she served as the Economist Turkey correspondent between 1999 and 2016. She's also worked as a columnist for several Turkish language outlets. Let's turn to that conversation right now. Ambrin, welcome to On the Middle East, and let's get right into it. Okay, let's do it. So, uh, Ambrin, how is the Turkish occupation of northeast Syria affected the situation there, including for the lives of those who, who live there? Tell, tell us about the trends and stories you've been covering. Absolutely. Well, it's had a huge impact, as you know, in the immediate aftermath of that um, assault uh, that started on October 9th last year, Operation Peace Spring, they called it. You had about 200,000 people displaced. According to the UN, some 70,000 of those people remain displaced. So a lot of upheaval. At the time, there were still, and there are still, uh, operations ongoing against the Islamic State. So this um, assault obviously caused a huge diversion uh, with uh, the Kurdish forces, the uh, partners of the U.S. coalition, having to confront uh, this huge army that came its way. And very quickly, they decided that they were not going to fight. As you know, they didn't put up much resistance. And so you had uh, two separate ceasefires broken, one by the Americans and the other by the Russians. 
Uh, and so what you now have is Russian and regime forces along that border with Turkey, and of course Turkish forces as well in the area that's under their control between Talabiyad and Ras Alayn, that's quite a chunk. Basically, the American presence has shrunk. Uh, American credibility has taken a huge hit. And of course, now you have COVID. And so some of Turkey's actions, which include um, cutting off water intermittently to uh, this area, the Hasaka region, where you have all these displacement camps, including uh, ones where you also have a significant number of Islamic State families and prisoners, uh, also separate camps holding them. And there's a lot of unrest. Uh, already there was a lot of unrest in those camps. And now with this added pressure of no water at a time when no water is so important during this pandemic, of course, it creates uh, new uh, pressures, making life much more difficult for the administration there. Emperor, President Erdogan of Turkey went into Syria, he said, because he wanted to eliminate the terrorist threat from the Syrian Kurdish groups there. Now, you've covered this issue. You've, you've covered the Democratic Union Party, the PYD of Syria, and the Gendarme, the People's Protection Unit, the, the YPG. Tell us about this. As, as you said earlier, Erdogan's been very consistent about this This threat as he sees it. What is the threat that he's talking well, it's about? Very simple, actually, Andrew. We first have to look at the roots of, of the PYD. Who, who are they? And this was a party that was established by uh, the PKK. The PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, is this militant group that's been at war on and off with Turkey since 1984. They started off saying they wanted to establish an independent Kurdish state carved out of um, the Kurdish parts of Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. And then in 1979, even before they'd launched uh, their insurgency, which began in 1984, their leader, Abdullah Öcalan, right before the 1980 military coup in Turkey, had crossed over to Syria and he led his insurgency from Syria. He lived there for 20 years. So a Kurdish identity in Syria was very much shaped by what was going on next door in Turkey, where this group, the PKK, was fighting the Turkish state. And of course, it was um, a very brutal campaign with a lot of abuses, but particularly on the part of the Turkish army against civ Kurdish civilians, uh, thousands of villages uh, raised to the ground, huge displacement. And all of this, of course, shaped these people inside Syria, these Kurds inside Syria, and of course, the deal with the Assad regime was that, you know, uh, the PKK would, you know, concentrate on Turkey and not foment any kind of unrest among the Kurds in Syria that would be directed at the regime itself. So you have this history of, uh, let's say, tacit cooperation, if you will, between the regime uh, and the PKK. But, but if you fast forward to 2000, when there began rapprochement between Syria and Turkey, and this came in the wake of Turkish threats to invade Syria if they didn't get rid of the Jalan, which they very quickly did. And he ended up in Kenya, 
uh, and was captured there by Turkish uh, special forces with the help of the Americans, of course, in uh, 1999, and he's now in, has been in the Turkish prisons ever since. But you need to understand that background to see why Turkey would see uh, this group as a threat, because they are very much interconnected with the PKK, and they, they do acknowledge that Öcalan is their leader, their spiritual ideological uh, leader. But uh, what happened was when the uprising erupted in Syria in 2011, the PKK saw an opportunity for itself. I must, of course, add that after uh, the Syrians got rid of Öcalan there, as I said, began rapprochement. And when the AKP in Turkey came to power, we saw, you know, Turkish cabinet ministers hold joint meetings with Syrian cabinet ministers, the, the, the Erdogan family, the Assads, going on trips together, uh, a lot of good feelings. And that came at the expense of the Kurds as well. Uh, a lot of pressure then built again on the PKK uh, that was maintained by the Assad regime against the PKK but, uh, and at the same time on uh, the other Kurdish political, political groups there as well. But then uh, when the uprising began, the PKK saw an opportunity for itself. It uh, helped uh, establish an armed entity there, the YPG. And it was at that time that the man we know as the leader of the Syrian Democratic Forces, Muslim Kobani, crossed back into Syria. He is a Syrian Kurd from Kobani, by the way, and helped establish this force. And uh, so initially, and this is something people have too uh, sadly forgotten, uh, initially Turkey saw an opportunity as well, one where it imagined the Syrian Kurds, the YPG, uh, helping it in its uh, regime change plans. How so? By uniting the Kurds with the Syrian uh, rebel opposition. And this was at a time when you had peace talks ongoing between Ankara and Öcalan. And part of those peace talks was getting the Syrian Kurds, who looked up to them as their leader, to agree to take part in the opposition against Assad. Those talks hit a wall because the Kurds very wisely decided that that wasn't the best thing for them and they you know wanted to maintain some form of neutrality where they carved out space for themselves between the opposition and and the regime you know uh, not confronting either side not taking sides effectively and just putting down their roots because they were able to do so when uh, the uh, Syrian regime withdrew from their areas in 2012, as you recall. Uh, and that didn't go down well in Ankara, and uh, the peace talks collapsed. There's, a, there's, of course, a domestic side to that too, related to um, uh, Erdogan's uh, presidential ambitions and the, the support he was seeking from the Kurds, etc. But anyway, that all sort of crumbled and things came to a head when the United States intervened on the side of the Syrian Kurds in Kobani in 2014. And then you really had the alarm bells ringing in Ankara where what they saw was America coming in to help establish a, a, another Kurdish entity on Turkish Turkey's borders alongside the one that already existed, again, because of US intervention um, in Iraq. And, you know, paranoia, full paranoia, and what do we do to stop this? And they've been in that sort of mode where we will not allow any kind of Kurdish 
political entity to take root on our borders in Syria. And that's where they are. And Erdogan has repeatedly said that he won't allow this political entity to uh, to survive, uh, to flourish. And he's pretty much, you know, done as he said uh, in 2018, uh, Turkish forces invaded the Kurdish enclave of Afrin and have occupied it ever since. And then in October, as we saw, uh, they sent in forces to uh, this area in the northeast between the towns of Talabiyad and Rasalayan and remain there as an occupation force and uh, putting quite a bit of pressure on the Kurds through various actions, as I mentioned, by first of all, keeping the borders closed to any kind of aid that might go through and also occasionally weaponizing water, among other things. Emberin, you know uh, Muslim Kobani Abdi very well. He's the commander of the Syrian Democratic Forces. You mentioned that earlier. And the what is the agenda now of the Syrian Kurdish parties? How, how does Kobani and the other Syrian Kurdish leaders see the end game there? Because they manage a very complicated set of relationships between the Syrian government, obviously the conflict with Turkey, the relationship with the United States, where the SDF was a key partner, the key partner in the underground fighting against Islamic State, and Russia, which also has its own angle with the Kurds. How do you see the Kurdish question in Syria sorting this out? And what would uh, what do you think an, an endgame looks like? Well, it's very hard to predict the end game because all you know the main stakeholders, with the exception, I'd say, of uh, Turkey and Russia, uh, are, are rather unpredictable. Uh, we know what the Russian aim is: it's to preserve the regime uh, because it's you know invested so much and it wants to put down its roots there and recoup its losses. It's invested heavily. And so part of Russia's uh, strategy, obviously, is to reconcile uh, the regime and the Kurds. And we just saw them pull off a deal that didn't get too much attention, but really merited it, where the main commercial artery, the M4 highway, which since uh, Operation Pre-Spring had been sort of sort of truncated, the, the flow of, uh, of traffic, uh, commercial traffic, which is vital to trade, had halted and they managed to broker a deal last month whereby the sides agreed to uh, resume that traffic that would, you know, going all the way from Hasika to Aleppo. And the Turks were involved in, to, uh, in that too because they, they also control a, a part of that uh, that lies north of the highway. Uh, that was quite significant. At the same time, they're trying to get the Kurds to sit down with Damascus, but then you have a countervailing pressure uh, coming from the Americans. And so, as you say, Muslim Kobani uh, is having to juggle all of that. And at the same time, we have a parallel process in which the United States is very much engaged in of trying to reconcile uh, the uh, pro-PYD parties, which obviously are the most influential in uh, Northeast Syria, with the other remaining uh, Kurdish opposition parties uh, which are closely aligned in the main with the Kurdistan Democratic Party of Iraq, uh, the Barzani family, who are their chief mentors. And at the same time, they're uh, 
part of that uh, umbrella group, which is known as the uh, Kurdish National Coalition, are also based in Turkey and uh, rely on Turkish patronage. So it's a very sort of complex situation. Turkey's not very happy about those talks. And what would Muslim Kobani uh, ideally want? Well, obviously, to be able to preserve the autonomy that they have, though, you know, they've lost some land as a result of the Turkish uh, occupation. But in some ways, that's worked to their benefit, because at least for now, you no longer have Turkey breathing down their necks and constantly threatening to attack, because Basically, it's, you know, it's now Russia and the regime that's there. He wants to concentrate on sort of consolidating this autonomy that they have, trying to develop the education system, to develop sort of uh, economy there. Obviously, hugely challenging, uh, given what's going on. And of course, oil is what uh, most of the oil of Syria, as you know, is in that region. And the Americans, as um, the president said, have remained their American forces to protect the oil. But the oil prices have, as you know, tanked across the world. So income has shrunk. So it's all extremely challenging. And their benefactors, the Saudis, the UAE, also suffering from the collapse in oil prices uh, and their huge investments elsewhere in, you know, these costly wars in Yemen, Libya. So it's extremely challenging. So, you know, in an ideal world, what they would want, obviously, is to find a way to reach some kind of understanding with Turkey and sort of develop a situation parallel to the one that evolved in Iraqi Kurdistan, where initially Turkey was very much opposed to Kurdish autonomy. Over time, they sort of had to get in line with the American project there. The difference, of course, is that in Iraq, the US was an occupation force and was in a position to uh, impose its will uh, to a great degree and, and by virtue of that also to uh, help draw up a constitution that gave uh, the Iraqi Kurds uh, unprecedented rights. Uh, you don't have that situation in Syria. There is no occupying force and the, you know, the ones with the boots on the ground in any kind of meaningful way are the Turks, are the Russians, and to a lesser extent, uh, Iran and its proxies. So how do the Kurds get to where they want to it is, it's not as easy, not as obvious, especially given the mixed signals we keep getting from Washington, where you have a president who really actually doesn't want to be there at all. Uh, will, what will change if, if the administration changes in January uh, remains to be seen. The people around Biden, people like Tony Blinken, have articulated, you know, they believe the US should stay. Uh, but obviously these things change, so we don't really know. But what I can say about Mazdum Kobani is that he's an extremely brilliant man. He, you know, he's a very good soldier, obviously. We all know how well the uh, Kurdish forces did against ISIS, but he's also proved increasingly to be a very able diplomat. Uh, we've seen him travel to the UAE, speak to Trump on the phone, albeit through a translator, or uh, he's managed to establish these relations. Uh, he was just in Baghdad uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, talking to the uh, Iraqi government about cooperating against ISIS along that very um, tricky border that they have where ISIS cells still uh, operate. Another objective of Erdogan in going into Syria was to create uh, a safe zone or security zone for 
refugees that are currently based in Turkey. Turkey currently has about 3.6 million Syrian refugees. That's a strain on the Turkish economy. Um, what about that objective? Do you see that as realistic, that he could resettle one to two million uh, Syrians in that area, in north, northeast Syria? Who's going to pay for it? You know, it would take so much money. And how do you organize that kind of thing? How do you even begin to get those people, you know, moving back to Syria when there's absolutely no stability, no security? And, you know, unless you create the kind of infrastructure for them. I mean, it's not just about building homes that you put them in. There needs to be an economy. There needs to be a means for them to, you know, survive, to live. It's to me, sounds extremely utopian, frankly, uh, this idea that you can, you know, rebuild that area and then send all these people back home in the absence of some kind of political stability and security. I mean, you have to remember why those people fled to Turkey to begin with, and you have this huge, you know, elephant in the room of, of Idlib, which remains unresolved. And I don't see anybody rushing to sort of pay uh, for what many see as a Turkish occupation of those areas. It does have all the hallmarks of an occupation where you have, you know, Turkish police stations with a Turkish flag, pictures of Erdogan in the government offices, and Turkish postal services are now uh, using the Turkish lira as the main currency with the collapse of the Syrian pound. Um, I think quite a bit of it, though, is also rooted, again, in Turkey's, or rather Erdogan's, domestic problems, because I think what recent elections showed him is his setbacks during these uh, municipal polls that took place last year in which the government lost, uh, you know, the jewel in the crown, Istanbul, Ankara, Bursa, all these big cities was also in part because there's growing resentment against the Syrians uh, in Turkey. And it's, you know, uh, not surprising because as uh, the economy suffers, of course, you, you look for a scapegoat and uh, the resentment towards Syrians is, you know, continually rising and people blame the government for their presence in Turkey. Uh, but can Turkey realistically force these people to return? I, I honestly don't think so. Ambrin, you've described in a recent column that U.S.-Turkey relations are characterized by perhaps irreconcilable differences, mostly because of these differences over the Kurds, which we've been talking about, and as well as Turkey's purchase of the S-400 Russian missile defense system, which led to congressional sanctions, but which the White House has not yet enacted. Now, on top of that, I, would it be also fair to note that the personal chemistry and connection between Presidents Trump and Erdogan is quite good, and they both rely on this personal summit-level diplomacy to move the action in U.S.-Turkey ties? Oh, absolutely. Um, they, they do get on very well. And as you know, uh, President Trump has business interests in Turkey. You have the Trump Towers in Istanbul. Yeah, the, the, there seems to be good chemistry between uh, those two men has been from the beginning. 
you know, it's very clear that President Trump has no interest in sanctioning Turkey, has been dragging his feet on this. And the only time we really saw him get tough with Turkey was over this uh, North Carolina pastor Brunson. And I think that was very much driven again by domestic political concerns because the evangelist base, you know, uh, was very upset about the detention of this pastor. He was seen as a political hostage. He, when he got tough, uh, we very quickly saw Turkey uh, free that pastor and send him back home. But insofar as, you know, uh, Syria, what, I, what we're increasingly seeing and certainly was very evident in October 2019 is that the United States and the, the, the Syria team at the State Department, led by Ambassador Jeffrey, is very keen uh, to patch up differences with Turkey and, and, and in some respects uh, see uh, Syria as a vehicle for achieving that. By the same token, of course, Syria was precisely why, or rather US support for the SDF was why uh, the, the two sides fell out. Well, uh, what better way then to, to, to help patch up differences if not by let's say, sacrificing the SDF, which is kind of what happened. At the time this invasion took place, you had talks ongoing, brokered by the US, you know, triangular talks between Turkey, US and the SDF, where they were supposed to be deline delineating this safe zone. Uh, and uh, in the spirit, you know, of a goodwill and cooperation, we had the SDF sort of pull back its heavy weapons from the Turkish border, fill up these tunnels that it had along that border, fill up the trenches. And then the next thing we know, um, the US has green-lighted Turkey's invasion. So uh, I think the fact of uh, Turkey being able to come in has removed quite a bit of the friction, actually, that existed between uh, Turkey and the United States over, over Syria. Uh, you don't hear Erdogan uh, making the same kind of threats as he as he used to prior to the invasion of course every now and then he does the volume of those has has, has been reduced i would say we've also heard ambassador jeffrey say that he wants to make uh, syria russia's quagmire and uh, he sees turkey as, as as a useful partner in that respect so uh, amberin do you think that Turkey sees itself as a bulwark against Russia? I think it very much would like the United States to believe that because uh, that in turn allows it to, um, you know, create this impression in Moscow that it has America on its side. Uh, so strengthens its negotiating position vis-a-vis -vis Moscow, at least uh, it, it hopes that's the case. And by the same token, you know, when it plays with Russia, it, it believes that in turn it makes itself uh, sort of more of greater value in the United States' eyes. Uh, you know, this a very important country with a, an incredibly strategic location, a uh, NATO member who's now being wooed by Russia, well, you know, the Americans have to make sure that doesn't happen. And so this creates a space where Turkey can, you know, pursue its own interests by encouraging this sort of rivalry for its affection between Russia and the United States. And that's kind of worked out well, certainly when it comes to uh, the Kurdish issue, at least 
we've seen the Americans be very accommodating, especially in October. But you know, the Russians are very wily uh, and they know the region very well. They know Turkey very well. I'm not sure that uh, they're quite as uh, naive as the Americans are. I think they play that game far better. And the Turks actually know that, which is why you saw uh, Turkey have to having to agree to Russia's terms of a ceasefire in, in Idlib. So, uh, Amber, in, in uh, January, Syrian government forces attacked Turkish outposts uh, in Idlib, killing Turkish soldiers and opening up for Erdogan a, a second front in, in Syria. And now that Syrian military campaign to retake uh, Idlib is, is backed by Russia. And so help me understand how Erdogan sees the situation in Idlib where at least in the city in various parts, key jihadi groups continue to hold influence and govern certain parts of the province and the city? Well, it's a very complex uh, situation because there are you know, various uh, moving parts here. On the one hand, there's this very immediate problem that Turkey faced when you saw the movement of people uh, when that Russian-backed uh, uh, regime offensive started in India, you had almost a million people pushed up against Turkey's border. And the last thing Turkey needs is more Syrian refugees. Uh, and so, of course, for Turkey, this was like very uh, existential, which is why Turkey decided to take action. I, I'm, I'm guessing the Russians didn't quite expect to, uh, Turkey to react with such force. But they did and uh, took out quite a few regime assets more than at any given time of this conflict. It was sort of the worst thrashing in that short period of time that uh, the, the regime ever encountered because you also had uh, Turkey using the air at one point until, of course, the Russians uh, intervened and stopped that. And of course, it, it was a, quite a defining moment in the sense that, you know, what triggered that very fierce Turkish response was also the fact that some 33 plus of its soldiers were killed in what is widely believed to have been a Russian airstrike. Washington was watching all of this very closely and it, it was a, it, you know, saw an opportunity and sure enough, the Turks uh, you know, were very grateful for any kind of support they could get from Washington, even if it was, you know, intelligence sharing um, and also verbal support, which they got uh, from, from Ambassador Jeffrey in particular. For Turkey, maintain, sort of maintaining the status quo is, is terribly important, but uh, we've, we, we're now seeing, you know, you had that ceasefire, which was pretty much on Russia's terms, where we had Erdogan go to Moscow and get humiliated, I would say. Uh, he was made to wait for a while before Mr. Putin even showed up for their meeting. Uh, and, uh, you know, Turkish space has been shrunk uh, in Idlib, as obviously has that of, uh, of the uh, jihadi groups there. And, you know, Turkey again is, uh, is expected to somehow uh, spin away as many of the uh, so-called moderates as it can from the hardcore jihadis there and, you know, find a way to stop them from attacking Russian assets in particular, the main air base, etc. Uh, but, you know, Turkey 
failed, which is why you had that offensive. And even though the HTS in particular is trying to play a constructive role, at least that's how some people see it, uh, by trying to restrain the more hardcore elements there, like Horacidine, other groups, um, the more uh, sort of uh, radical groups, uh, it, it's still not good enough. Uh, we now see the beginnings of another offensive looming and how that plays out, we, we shall see and what kind of support, if any, will Washington lend to Turkey if things come to a head again? Because a, a renewed offensive means, again, pressure on Turkey's border from refugees, a potential refugees. So very complicated. Given the humanitarian crisis that exists in Syria, it seems the Syrian people there continue to um, to pay a high price uh, for all of this. Oh, absolutely. It's the Syrian people who are paying the highest price, no doubt. I mean, they're confronted by war, a very ruthless government that seems to have no uh, consideration for for human life, raining barrel bombs on hospitals, on, on you know, civilian population centers, a high degree of corruption, and uh, a regime that shows absolutely no signs of changing its behavior uh, and empowered by a country, Russia, that has very little regard, apparently, for human rights as well. And now there's the Caesar sanctions that will kick in. Uh, and the fear, of course, is very much that this will just make life even harder, if that were even possible, because life is so hard for most Syrians, with over 83% living beneath the poverty line. Currency has completely collapsed. A monthly salary can maybe buy you one kilo of meat, if that. I mean, it's, it's, life is very, very hard. Embrin, as, as our time winds down, I want to ask you, uh, given your success in the region, covering very difficult areas, covering conflict, covering things like refugee issues, all, all quite demanding, uh, what would be your kind of advice or uh, observation for young aspiring journalists, including, including women journalists? Well, you know, I think the, the same rules apply, uh, you know, whether you're young or whether you're old is, you know, just try and talk to as many people as you can. The more people you talk to, the more you learn, the more, you know, sides to the story you uncover. Uh, and there's no uh, substitute for being on the ground doing that. Uh, that would, you know, be my top advice and always hold up what you're told to scrutiny, to very in intense scrutiny, and don't sort of allow yourself to sort of bask in the glow of having managed, let's say, to um, talk to very high level people, not hold their words to scrutiny. Theirs above all need to be held up to scrutiny. Uh, and insofar as being a woman is concerned, my, in my view, it's a huge advantage, actually, to be a woman in this profession because I feel that people are more relaxed around women, uh, let down their guard more easily among women. Uh, I think, you know, as a woman, let's say you, you, you go to Syria and you're sort of trying to interview uh, wives of um, ISIS fighters, uh, 
I think it's clear that they, 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 they are more comfortable talking to women than they would be to men. I think this idea that you know men are physically stronger, therefore more resilient in, in war circumstances is, is, is totally overrated. I think uh, women are every bit as resilient and have much more flexibility. Thank you, Rambrin, for a great conversation today and for your outstanding reporting for El Monitor. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. The pleasure was all mine. We'll be right back with some closing remarks. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. Welcome back to On the Middle East. I would like to conclude with four takeaways from my conversation with Amber and Zaman just now. The first is while the U.S. might see Turkey as a bulwark against Russia and Syria, that's not how Erdogan sees it. To the contrary, his own limited maneuvering room, and it is quite limited in Syria, is enhanced by the perception of leverage by Washington and Moscow about leverage with the other, as Ambrim pointed out. And that probably goes somewhat for Iran too. While Turkey may be at odds with Iran on a variety of issues, uh, Ankara, I think, is unlikely to be see itself or become an instrument of U.S. policy against Iran. Iran Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif was in Ankara this week, and both Iran and Turkey in the last few days have hit PKK-linked bases in northern Iraq. While Russia, Turkey, and Iran may have differences, they all meet and discuss in the so-called Astana group, the Astana trio. And I think despite their differences, they see value in that forum. I've always been surprised how that grouping has held on for so long, given the differences, but it does. Second, as Ambrim pointed out, Turkey's occupation of Syria contains what I would call a fantastical notion that more than a million Syrian refugees could be moved from Turkey into the so-called safe zone or security zone in northeast Syria. This massive population transfer, for one, has no budget, as she pointed out. Syrian refugees would be very hesitant to go. And there are already reports, which we've covered at El Monitor, by human rights and NGO groups, that Kurds and and other minorities in Syria are being uprooted by Turkish and Turkish 
proxy occupation forces. Ambrin also mentioned that Turkey uh, and its uh, allies there have used water as a weapon against certain towns and villages. My third takeaway would be that the sanctions imposed on Syria will, at the end of the day, take a heavy toll on Syrians who have suffered under the Syrian government and war for now nine years. There may be many policy justifications for the Caesar sanctions and the many other sanctions. Uh, I'm not debating or dismissing them here. I'm simply just agreeing with Amber and that the Syrian people will pay a high price, and that's simply a fact. Fourth, and finally, because the U.S. has neither relations nor meaningful dialogue with Syria or Iran, I, it does have leverage with Turkey and, and Russia as well, not to mention the Syrian Kurds. And so the U.S. is still an impactful player in Syria. And the humanitarian situation and the political transition, at the end of the day, I think requires U.S.-Russia collaboration, including at the Security Council, if the Syrian people are ever to get a reprieve from this conflict. Thank you for listening. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, and I'll be back next week for On the Middle East. Please sign up for On the Middle East and On Israel, hosted by Ben Caspit, at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.